So we're going to look at the subject of the loud cry message. If you have a Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. And the Bible says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, so a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And it goes on and says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. First four verses of Revelation 18 is what is often referred to as the loud cry message. Sometimes people refer to it as the fourth angel, because there's three in Revelation 13, Revelation 14, and then you have this other angel there. So sometimes it's referred to as the fourth angel's message as well. Same thing. Same thing. So this message here in Revelation chapter 18, what does it mean? What message will be given right here at the very end? So, we ask the question, what is the loud cry? The simple answer is, verse 2, what's the first words in the loud cry message? Babylon is what? Is fallen. Babylon is fallen. So we're going to go through this like, <coughs> and give us a basic understanding of verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. So we see here in verse 2 that Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So we ask this question here on the screen, who has taken up abode in Babylon? And the text says, who's taken up abode there? The habitation of what? The habitation of devils. The habitation of devils. Now, we'll unpack this a little bit. How many of you know what country Babylon is in today? Literal Babylon. Iraq. Iraq, Iraq, however you say it. So Babylon is in Iraq south of Baghdad. Now, Babylon was around in, obviously, the Babylonian Empire, which is 600 BC, and then it was still around after that for, uh, for some while longer. But Babylon became, was destroyed as a city, as a literal city. The Persians conquered the city of Babylon, and later on, it was destroyed, and it has not been inhabited since. In Isaiah, the prophecy was that Babylon would be destroyed, and would never be rebuilt again, which to this day is still fulfilled. Saddam Hussein, with all the money and strength and power that he had as the dictator of Iraq, tried to rebuild the city of Babylon. He even had his bricks with a similar imprint to what Nebuchadnezzar had 
you know, Nebuchadnezzar's bricks all had an imprint, or most of them, which said, you know, I, Nebuchadnezzar, rule of the world, da 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 da. Saddam Hussein did a similar thing with his own bricks, about how he was a great leader, ruler, etc. And even with all his might and money, as dictator of the country, he wasn't able to rebuild Babylon. It still is ruins today. He, he may patched up a few walls, but he never rebuilt the city. Why? Well, you see, literal Babylon was prophesied that it would become destroyed, and it was prophesied within the prophecy that it would become the habitation of wild animals, not humans. Animals would live there. Now, spiritual Babylon has also fallen and has become the habitation of devils, spirits, unclean and hateful birds. Okay? Spiritual Babylon has also fallen. Now, Satan and his angels, I believe, Satan and his angels are the spirits today that live in modern Babylon. Now, Revelation 18 verse 2, notice the text there, Revelation 18 verse 2, as we read, it said, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul what? Every foul spirit and the cage of unclean and hateful birds. I believe what this text is pointing out is that within Babylon, and Babylon is, you know, Babylon means confusion. Within Babylon, which is a word for spiritual confusion, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism. And when we say apostate Protestantism, we're referring to Protestants that are not living up to their name, which is to protest, and have fallen away, which is basically all of Protestantism today. So you've got Catholicism, Protestantism, or apostate Protestantism, which are not living up to their creed, saying that they you know, follow Jesus and the Bible. Spiritualism is filling up the churches today. Protestant and Catholic across the board. And so part of the loud cry message is identifying that taking place and seeing that it's taking place. Babylon has become the hold of every foul spirit. Now, the loud cry message, part of it, a key component of the loud cry message, is to declare the truth on spiritualism. Now, at the root of spiritualism is a misunderstanding of this key doctrine, the state of the dead. Let me ask you, rhetorical question, I'm not asking for a response, but can you today tell me where the dead go when they die? You may say, yeah, they go to sleep. Can you give me 10 Bible texts off the top of your head? Forget 10. Can you give me five Bible texts off the top of your head? References. I'm not asking you to quote them like Randy Skeet. Can you just give me five references off the top of your head that would say where the dead go? We had one, clear in 9, 5, and 6. I'm not asking for five necessarily. But what I'm doing, what I'm saying is, have these references in your mind. Be able to quote some references that give some substance to your faith. Because when you're witnessing to someone, even if, 
you know, where do you believe the dead go? Well, I believe when the dead die, they sleep. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says it. Well, where do you know it says that? You know, I'll get back to you. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's better to do that than not say anything at all. But if you can just quote a few references, it gives that much more authority to what you've just said. Even if you don't open the Bible and look at them. Now, it's easy to memorize references. Amen? Now, some of you here have memorized lots of useless information in your life. You know, it could be something in school. I'm not saying it's useless, but you may not use it after you've memorized it and put it on the test. But in other areas of life, we memorize things quite a lot. Does anyone here like, I don't know, some of you here memorize like shopping prices in the shops. Some of you here memorize sports information. You know, you can tell me who's the top scorer for what club and how many points they have and, and who scored in this game and what minute they scored in. I mean, whatever. It's, in a sense, in the grand scheme of eternity, it's useless information, but your mind is able to remember that. Remember and put in some text in your mind on state of the dead, the Sabbath, the second coming. Make it a challenge this year. Write down seven key beliefs that we as an Adventist church believe. Sabbath, second coming, state of the dead, sanctuary, um, scriptures, salvation, uh, the, 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 the state of the dead, um, stewardship. Write down some key doctrines and just put down five reference texts to each one of them. And just work it in your mind that over the next year, you'll take one doctrine and just memorize text on that doctrine. Just so you have knowledge. Because the key part of the loud cry message is to declare the truth on spiritualism. Therefore, it's fundamental that you understand the state of the dead. You know, when I preach evangelistic campaigns, one of the hardest doctrines to teach people can be the state of the dead. Not that it's a complicated doctrine, because the Bible's very clear on it. But it's very conceptual doctrine. For example, in the state of the dead sermon, you have to prove to someone that Death is asleep. Now, that's a big concept to get people's minds around. Death is asleep. Then you have to prove to them another concept in the Bible, that the breath of man is the same as the spirit. You have to, that's a concept, because a lot of people think the spirit is a separate entity. No, you have to show that breath or life is the same as the spirit. That's another concept you have to share with people. Then you have to share the concept that when the, when the dead die, the breath or the life goes back to God. Then you have to share the concept of sleeping, they don't know anything. There's a lot of these different concepts in the sermon or this teaching of the state of the dead. It's a lot more in a sense than just saying the dead sleep. So it's an important one to get your head around, to really kind of look at Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes 12, and get an understanding as to what you believe on this key, key doctrine of the state of the dead. Because it's going to be one of the pillars of the loud cry message, to declare the truth on the state of the dead. Which is, when we say declare the truth on the state of the dead, I'm not saying the loud cry message is someone standing at the front and teaching the state of the dead. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that an understanding of the state of the dead is key to refuting the errors that are going to be around dealing with spiritualism. That's the fruit, and that is the 
root. If you want to talk about the fruit, you need to understand what the root is. Okay? Revelation 18, verse 3, though, we see a shift. We see a shift in Revelation 18, verse 3. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of the fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Here we have a prophecy of the union of church and state in this verse. Here we see church and state together in the one verse. And part of the loud cry message is to declare the evils of the union of church and state. Where do you see church and state in this verse? A church in Bible prophecy is a what? Is a woman? And we know that because of what verses in the Bible? Give me one or two references. Jeremiah chapter... Chapter 6 and verse 2. Jeremiah 6 verse 2 is one of them. And then we also have 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I believe it is. And then you have Ephesians 5. Those are three of the best ones. So a woman represents a church in Bible prophecy. Now notice Revelation 18 verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of whose? Her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Now, king is a what term? It's a state or civil term. King is a state or civil term. Her would be a woman. Therefore, you have a king, a state, committing fornication, which is illicit union, with a woman. It's a union a bad union of the church, the king, and the, sorry, the church, the woman, and the state, the king. So the loud cry message in verse 2 is talking about spiritualism. In verse 3 is talking about the church and the state. The nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it's exposing the evils of the union of church and state. You know, whenever church and state unite, whenever, <coughs> excuse me, whenever church and state unite on this earth, it is never, never a good outcome for the church or for the state. Never. The, the, in history, the highlighted version of church and state uniting would be the Catholic Inquisitions, where the church and the state are united as one and they're persecuting anyone who doesn't believe. But even when church and state unite today, it always weakens one or the other. You know, the church in Europe, the Christian church in Europe, is largely dead. Average church attendance is 4 or 5% per country in Europe, generally. And of those 4 or 5%, about 80% are over the age of 80 but the thing about the church in Europe is every country in Europe, for the most part, almost every country, has an official state church. Church of England, Lutheran church in Germany, Lutheran church in Sweden and Norway, and so on. Official state churches. But by having it as an official state church, it weakened the church. 
America is unique as a country because in the United States of America, they founded the country on the principle that there would be a state without a king and a church without a pope. And there would not be an official American church. There is no official American church or even really religion. In America, you have the greatest right that you can have, and that's the right to be wrong in someone else's eyes. That there is no state church of America. It's not the Baptist church, it's not the Methodist church. There is none. Religious freedom is the foundation of real true freedom. And so when America, a nation that is founded on religious freedom, and the separation of church and state goes against that, the irony is that in America today, the Christians of America... I'm using this term very generally. A lot of the Christians in America, they are wanting more state input, more religious input into the state. As if it will give more strength to the country. Like we want prayer in schools and we want the Ten Commandments on the walls and we want this and we want this and we want this. It's so terrible we can't pray before our football game at the high school. Da, 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 da. I went to a school where we had prayer every day. Every single day. The vicar came, the priest came, the preacher came, every day. I can tell you, made no difference to the spiritual life of the school. When it's mandated, it becomes weak. Now, church and state is going to unite in the end again. Benjamin Franklin said this. He was one of the first presidents of America. He said these words. When religion is strong, it takes care of itself. Profound quote. When religion is strong, it will take care of itself. Meaning, when the church is strong, they don't need help from outside. They stand on their own. It's when the church gets weak that it's going to appeal to the arm of the state to help it out. And I think what we're seeing in the United States now is the church is getting weaker and as it's getting weaker and it's not having the strength that it had 10, 15, 20 years ago, increasingly it's trying to appeal to the state to give it some extra backup and help. It's the very thing that will kill it, but will usher in final events. So part of the loud cry message is to expose the union, evils of the union of church and state. Now you see verse 2 and verse 3. There are two doctrines that we have just talked about. Verse 2 was the doctrine of what? State of the dead. Verse 3 is exposing the evils of the union of church and state. My question to you is, why would church and state want to unite over what issue or what doctrine? Sunday. Sunday. Notice here, two of the great errors that Satan will use to bring the masses under his control, we are told by Ellen White, are... Sunday sacredness, and the belief in the spirits. These two, twin pillars. It's these two doctrines that tie apostate Protestantism to Rome. When the Reformation happened and you had the Lutherans leave, and the Methodists leave, and the Baptists leave, and the Church of England leave Rome, they left and changed many of their teachings and doctrines, but all of them still held on to Two twin doctrines. They all kept Sunday, like the mother church, and they all kept the same belief in the state of the dead that the mother church believed in. And these two doctrines 
tie them back to Rome and will eventually pull them all the way back. There's a quotation that I, that I sometimes use in my prophecy seminar where it talks about like a little boy who's run away from home but still keeps in his back pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. It's like the churches. They've run away from Rome, like a little boy running away from their mom, but they've still got the picture in the pocket. And that picture will one day take them back home. So Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. Now, when, the, when this message in Revelation 18 is given, Revelation 18 message is given, note this. The third angel, which is the, three, the third angel's message we talked about, about the mark of the beast and so on, it does not cease to sound when the loud cry begins. The loud cry, which is the fourth angel, joins his voice with the third angel, and of course the first and second are still sounding. So the, the, third, sorry, the fourth angel's message, in a sense, is not a new message. It's really the second and third angel's message combined together with great emphasis and great power at the end. It's almost like these two messages are so important, it's given greater emphasis and repeated later on in Revelation. Okay? So, reading on Revelation 18 and verse uh, 4, Revelation 18 and verse 4, it says, And I heard a loud voice, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, what? Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So the call is to call people out of Babylon. Increasingly in our church today, this, this style of message is under attack. There are some people that believe we don't even need to call people out of their churches. Just let them be where they are, and let God judge them. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh It's our job to call people out. To call people out. Call people out of every church that sins. Sin is the transgression of the law. Call people out of the churches that are breaking God's law. Now, I believe there are many good people in other churches. Amen? Many good people. Still does not negate our call to call people out. You see... This comes under the commission that we have been given. Now, when, what is the time frame of these, this message? What is the time frame? Verse 4 says at the end, that ye be not what? Partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her what? Plagues. This helps to give us the time frame. And then it says, um, where is it? For all nations. Was that the verse previous? Verse 3 says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This helps to give us the time frame. Nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now this is still referring to a future time. Okay? The nations have not drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Yet. This is the final apostasy which constitutes the signal of giving the loud cry message. Okay? when it will finally be given. The, for, what's, the fornication is the union of church and state. When church and state unite, when church and state unite is when finally 
this wine of the wrath of a fornication is complete. Notice here, Revelation 18 points to a time when as a result of rejecting the threefold warning of Revelation 14, 6-12, the church will have fully reached the condition foretold by the second angel and the people of God still in Babylon will be called upon to separate from her communion. But it's a time still future because they've rejected this message, it's given again and God's people in there are called to separate. In Revelation 18, it says, come out of her, my people. God still has people there, and he's calling his people out. He's saying, come out. Now, what marks the completion of the apostasy that will take place? When the messages of Revelation 14 are rejected, the apostasy is complete. And the final completion of the rejection of the messages is going to be signaled when we see a national Sunday law. Now, a lot of these terms, many of them mean the same thing. The national Sunday law is going to signify the rejection of the apostasy. The national Sunday law is also when the image to the beast is completed. Because the image to the beast is a what? It's the image or the reflection of the of the beast. And the beast is the Roman Catholic Church, which is the epitome of the union of church and state. So when we have a, rep a replication of church and state, not the replication of church and state like in England where the queen is the head of the church and the queen is the head of the state. No, no, no. The replication of church and state that produces religious law, then that apostasy is complete. When would the loud cry cease to be given? The loud cry would cease to be given when probation closes. Why? There's no point preaching it if probation is closed. Okay? The close of probation. So, verse 4, notice here. What falls on Babylon as a result of rejecting the plagues, or of rejecting the message? The plagues fall. The plagues fall. Let's go back to verse 4. What does it say there? It says, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. See, the plagues don't fall until probation closes. The plagues are held in check until the people can be called out. Amen? God is not going to pour His wrath until his people are called out. Therefore, this is like the last message of mercy to the world prior to God pouring his wrath out. And the wrath of God, the seven last plagues, I mean, the, the, the seven last plagues is the wrath of God which is poured out, the Bible says in Revelation 14, without mixture. You know, every other time God has poured his wrath out on this world, he has always, he has always mingled his wrath with mercy. For example, God says in, 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 in Genesis chapter 6, 7, He says, I am going to destroy the earth by flood. That's wrath. But if you get on the boat, you'll live. Or He says, Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a better example. He says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah by fire, 
But, he says, if I find 50 or it eventually goes down to 10 righteous men in the city, I'll save everybody. That's the wrath mingled with mercy. But here, he says, I'm going to pour out the plagues on the, city, on the world, those who have the mark of the beast, without mixture. So the seven last plagues, they are not a, you know, it's not something to just be like, ah, big deal. We're going to look into the seven last plagues tomorrow when we look at uh, the time of trouble. But the plagues come when probation closes, and they are held in check until people can be called out. Isn't God merciful? Amen? He gives the warning before he gives the punishment. Thank you. Yeah, God never, for God never forces anything. He cannot force anything on us. It's, not, it's against his nature. And so they reject the mercy of God, they receive the plagues. So where does the loud, so the loud cry message is given, and the question is asked, where does the power to give this message come from? Notice here, the commencement of the time of trouble here mentioned does not refer to the time when the plague shall begin to be poured out, yes, but to a short period just before they are poured out, while Christ is in the sanctuary, at that time, while the work of salvation is closing, trouble will be coming on the earth, the nations will be angry, yet held in check so as not to prevent the work of the third angel. Notice that, that sentence. Trouble will, come, will be coming on the earth and the nations will be angry, but held in check. Until what? Until the last message can be given. God is merciful on this world, amen? He's holding in check the winds of strife. I mean, what is human nature going to be like when the winds of strife are let loose? When God's spirit is withdrawn, what would it be like? You know, in England, we had these riots. I don't know if you saw them on the news in 2011. Did any of you see them on the news? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it didn't make news here. But we had these riots in England in 2011. What happened was, in North London, a young black man got shot by a police officer, killed. So the people in that neighborhood went on a riot. So this was terrible. Why did you shoot him? Blah, 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 blah. And they had a riot. Now, what happened was this. Now, maybe you could say the people in that neighborhood, their riot was justified. Maybe, okay? You can maybe argue that. Then what happened was this. In South London, the young people there went on a riot. Nothing to do with the guys in North London. And then what happened was, in the city I was living in at the time, in Birmingham and Wolverhampton, the youth went into the city center and rioted. Then in Manchester, they went into the city center and, and it was... It was, it was like mayhem. I've never, there's nothing like it. You'll never see anything like it. It was like for two days, riots went on in all these cities, with, and none of these riots were with cause apart from maybe the first one. And so in the city of Birmingham, people just went into the city, smashed up all the shops, robbed stuff, and went home. People were driving from way outside the city, driving in, parking the cars, going, smashing windows, putting their hoods up, robbing stuff, and going home. People were doing it just for fun. Middle-class kids with plenty of money were going to join the riot just for the fun of the riot. As well as people in poverty and so on. And it was like... It, and then it stopped. It just stopped. And to me, it was almost like a microcosm. It was almost like... I don't know. I'm just interpreting. It was almost like the Spirit of God was withdrawn just for, just for a second. And it was almost like... You just got a snapshot. That's human nature with no restraint. Just for two days. 
just for two days. And then, and then after two days, things went back to normal. Went back to normal. And it was almost like, that's what it'll be like, only it won't end. Okay? So God held it in check just long enough for the third angel's message, and at that time, the latter rain or refreshing from the presence of the Lord will come to give power to the loud voice of the third angel. Why? And prepare the state saints to stand in the period when the seven last plagues shall be poured out. Amen? So there's another reason for the latter rain, to prepare the saints to stand in the period when the seven last plagues are poured out. So the loud cry and the latter rain are closely related. So if we summarize so far, the, la- the loud cry, if we look at the, the mechanics of it, is talking about Sunday sacredness, the union of church and state. It's also talking about spiritualism. That's kind of the, the essence of it, declaring that and warning people against receiving the plagues and calling them out. But the loud cry is closely related with the latter rain. The loud cry is the effect of receiving the latter rain. One of the purposes of receiving the latter rain is that the saints may have the power to give the loud cry. The loud cry is the message. The power to give it comes from the latter rain. The two go hand in hand. You can't separate them. They go together. It's almost like justification and sanctification. You can't really separate them. They're kind of intertwined. Here, the loud cry and the latter rain, they go together. One is the message. One is the power. One is the message, and one is the power. You see, you know, when I think about the, the message that's gone to all the world, you know, is it just our duty? You know, sometimes as Adventists we say, what is Jesus waiting for before he comes? Well, Jesus is waiting for us to preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. True or false? It's a trick question. It's true, but it's also not fully true. Not fully true. He's not just waiting for the gospel to be preached verbally, so to speak. Like, let's just, it's almost like sometimes as Adventists we think, okay, look, here's the world, there's six million people, everyone has to hear the name of Jesus. Okay, we've got that much. Let's just finish that and then we're done. Jesus has to come. So let's print more books, let's send more evangelists, let's let's get more TV stations. All those things are good. It's not just the preaching of the message that God is waiting for. It's his people that live the message, experience it, and have the power going along with it. How many of you guys here like to camp? Anyone like to camp here? A few of you like to camp? "Eh." If they forced me to do it when I was a pathfinder, I did it, but that's about it. Maybe, I don't know. I like camping. I love camping. Um... Let me ask you a question. In order to put a tent pole vertical, how many pieces of rope do you need? Wrong. Not two. Not one. Not two. Minimum. What's the minimum number? to Keep it straight. You've got to have three. I mean, if you have two, it could flop forwards or backwards. And you could keep it straight if the pole's, if the poles kind of wedged. But in order to keep a pole dead straight, you need a minimum of three ropes. I believe the return of Jesus is kind of like a tent pole standing straight. There's three strands or three factors in the return of Jesus. Number one, there's, I think there's a certain element in the Bible that talks about the wickedness of the world, the cup of iniquity. That's one element. Personally, I think we've reached that one full already. But that's my own personal opinion. 
The second strand of rope is the preaching of the gospel to the world. That's clear. The third strand, or the third rope, is God's people having the character of Christ. Now, we can have the wicked world, and we can verbally preach the gospel to the whole world, but if we are not manifesting the character of Christ as early rain, latter rain, Jesus still won't come. He needs a people that are manifesting and demonstrating his character that he can take them home. So the loud cry, yes, there's the mechanics of the message, okay, state of the dead, church of state, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it's a lot more than that. Because the reality is, even today, we may be preaching Babylon is fallen. Even today, we may be preaching Revelation 13. But there's a difference. The latter rain power will give, this mes- will give this message the power that it needs to complete everything at the end. Now, what is the latter rain? It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where does this come from? It comes from the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary in conjunction with Jesus' closing work. As the sins are blotted out, God pours his spirit out on man. God pours his spirit out. See, the latter rain, loud cry, they go hand in hand. What is the result of giving the loud cry? We've looked at some of these points already. We're going over some of them and giving some new ones. The result of giving the loud cry, miracles will be work, sick will be healed, multitudes will be converted, and the experience of giving the loud cry, sorry, of receiving the latter rain and giving the loud cry seals the saints. The sealing will be completed before probation closes. So when the loud cry message is given, when the latter rain is received, People will be doing miracles. They'll be converting multitudes in a day, and also that experience will seal the saints of God. Okay? It will seal them. I'm looking forward to when these things take place. But it's really this thing that is the key when God seals us. Okay? Mighty miracles are wrought. The sick are healed. And signs and wonders followed the believers. God was in the work and every saint, fearless of consequences, followed the convictions of his own conscience and united with those who were keeping all the commandments of God. And with power, they sounded abroad the third message. I saw this message would close with power and strength far exceeding the midnight cry. So here is talking about what takes place, the mighty miracles. Now, this is not a time for planting of seeds, but it's a time for gathering the results of the harvest. Amen? Gathering the results of the work that has previously taken place. I think we'll see some of the results of the work we do now, then. Notice here, the seeds of truth that are being sown by missionary efforts will then spring up and blossom and bear fruit. Souls will receive the truth who will endure tribulation and praise that they may suffer for Jesus. You know, the reality is when we do evangelism work today, the reality is it can be hard work. Amen? It can be thankless work 
and sometimes it can appear to your eyes and mind that there's not much fruit to the work. The promise is given. We know the promise in the Bible. My word will not come back, what? Void or empty. Here it backs that up. The seeds of truth being sown by missionary efforts will then spring up and bear fruit. The books that are given out, the great controversies, the steps to Christ, whatever books that have been given out throughout history, there will be a reaping of them at the end. Notice here, the message will be carried not so much by arguments as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. The arguments have been presented, the seed has been sown, and now it will spring up and bear fruit. The publications distributed by missionary workers have exerted their influence, yet many whose minds were impressed have been prevented from fully comprehending the truth or yielding obedience. Now the rays of light penetrate everywhere, the truth is seen in its clearness, and the honest children of God sever the bands that have held them. Family connections, church relations are powerless to stay them now. Truth is more precious than all besides, notwithstanding the agencies combined against the truth, a large number take their stand on the Lord's side. Now, this is one of the quotations that is often used by publishing ministry people to show that the publishing work is the fourth angel, which is partially true, but not fully true. You know, sometimes people say, the publishing work is the fourth angel. I know where they're coming from, but it's not the correct 100% interpretation of Revelation 18. Amen? But what we do know, as she says here, is that the publications distributed by missionary workers that have been in the homes will then bring forth fruit then. That doesn't mean the publishing work is the fourth angel's message. It means that we will see the results of the publishing work at the time of the loud cry message. That's why don't think it a small thing when you have an opportunity to pass out tracts, when you have an opportunity to pass out pamphlets, when you have an opportunity to pass out books now. You know, sometimes as a church, we go out into the neighborhood. I don't know if you do that here. You may go out into the neighborhood and say, we're going to knock on every door in this neighborhood and we're going to give everyone a copy of this book. And maybe you distribute 1,000. Maybe you distribute 10,000. Maybe 2,000. And at the end of that year, and you summarize your church accounts, so to speak. Well, we gave out a thousand um, great controversies this year. Well, how many people joined the church because of that? Oh, none. Oh, should we do that next year? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe that's not a good idea. You know, I worked as a coal porter leader for about six or seven years in my, in my breaks. And we sold hundreds, thousands of books. And I know from the books that we sold, the, you know, the, the great controversies, the the um, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, and all these books that we sold. I know that the, the, the number of people that joined our church as a result of what we sold is vastly disproportionate. I know that. But I take encouragement from these quotations that tell us that the publications will then bring forth their fruit at the end. Where the printed page goes, we do not know. So it's like, you can... Give out the books now, and God will bring a harvest someday. Because he promises, my word will not come back, what? Void. 
You know, there's so many encouraging stories throughout history of people who've given books away and they've not seen who's, you know. I mean, imagine when you get to heaven and people will come up to you and you have no idea who they are. No idea. And they come and thank you. And you're like, why are you thanking me? Well, I just want to thank you that on, 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 um, you know, on January the 15th, 2015, you went out with your church youth group and you passed out a book and your book went to so-and-so and that person you know, gave it to so-and-so and that person left it on the dining table in so-and-so's house and so-and-so came to the house and picked it up and took it to my uncle's house and my uncle gave it to me and I read it. Like, oh, wow. Praise the Lord. And who knows? The more books you give out, the more crazy stories like that you will hear in heaven of people that will come to you and be like, and then I got the book. It's like it's going to be exciting. The publications are going to play a key part of this message. So the work we do now has a part to play. Amen? Notice the reaction to the message. Notice the reaction to the loud cry message in the church. We're going to look at two reactions. One reaction in the church and one reaction outside of the church. The reaction in the church is this. There is to be in the churches a wonderful manifestation of the power of God. But it will not move upon those who will not humble themselves before the Lord and open the door of their heart by confession and repentance. In the manifestation of that power, which lightens the earth with the glory of God, this is the loud cry, latter rain, they only see something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which will arouse their fears, and they brace themselves to resist it. So they see it as like, we don't know this, we don't recognize it, and they resist it in the church. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Because the Lord does not work according to their expectations and ideals, they oppose the work. Why, they say, should, the spirit, should we not know the Spirit of God when we've been in the work for many years? That's a warning to those of us who are older in years. And it's easy, no matter who you are, no matter how dedicated you are, to slip into that group. I've been in the work for a long time. I have never seen this take place. It will not work. I could tell you a few stories, but I know I'm on Audioverse. So I have to be very careful what I say. <laughs> but I'll be as vague as I can. Certain evangelistic project was wanted to be started by youth in a certain country somewhere in this world. It was presented... To the youth, they liked it. It was presented to a wider group, they liked it. It was then presented to the church. And it was spoken down in the church by the retired minister in the church. Who's very passionate about evangelism. And is a very, very, very good man. There's something about age that we may not like different plans that come. Now, I'm not talking about different philosophies, liberal conservative. There's something about age that doesn't like new methods, even if they're not wrong methods. And there's something about getting older that we have to ask and pray God to give us flexibility in our age to recognize his spirit moving in the younger generation. Amen? 
And here they say, we've been in the work for many years. Because they did not respond to the warnings, the entreaties, or the messages of God, but persistently said, I am rich and increased with good and have need of nothing. So there's a group in the church that say, nope, we don't recognize that spirit, we don't like that spirit, and they brace themselves to resist it. You know, there's a beauty of youth. The beauty of youth is that young people, and now I'm 36, so officially I'm outside the general conference youth category. The youth, according to the GC, is 16 to 35, officially. But there's something about youth, and one of the beauties of young people is young people don't know something can't be done. Amen? The youth don't know it can't be done, partly because they've never tried. So therefore, they don't know it doesn't work, so they try it anyway. One of the problems of age... It's a, it's, it's a blessing at times, but one of the problems of age is that age says, I've tried that, that doesn't work, and I've tried that, that doesn't work. Now, that's okay when it's wisdom. It's not okay when it's pride in the sense of it didn't work for me, therefore I don't want it to work for you either. And so youth is a great thing in the sense of ideas, energy, and trying something anyway. Because eventually the mold has to be broken. The mold has to be broken. Notice here. Uh, the third angel's message will not be comprehended. The light which will lighten the earth with its glory will be called a false light by those who refuse to walk in its advancing glory. So this, this message, this power, is going to be rejected within the church by people who say, I don't recognize that moving. Now, this doesn't mean the church is going to pieces. It doesn't mean the church will be rejected. It doesn't mean that the church will drop out. I believe the Seventh-day Adventist church, this movement that God began around 1844 and has been leading, he will lead through the pearly gates. Amen? I believe God is in this church, but I also believe that many will be shaken out. Many will leave the ship. Many will abandon the movement. But some of those, before they leave, will oppose the loud cry message and call it false light. You know, sometimes when you hear of some of the things taking place in our church today, you just sometimes wonder, why don't you have the, 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 the integrity of character to just leave the church? You don't believe in creation. You barely believe in the Sabbath. You don't believe in the sanctuary. You don't believe in the spirit of prophecy. Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Like, be ethical. Go. No. I will stay. We're told they'll oppose it. Some will oppose it and some will call the true message false light prior to leaving. Now what about Babylon? How does Babylon react? Babylon reacts as well. The power attending the message will only madden those who oppose it. The clergy, the ministers, will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut the truth out, to hide away the light, lest it should shine upon their flocks. Yet even today, you can see that taking place sometimes, where the clergy block in certain countries. By every means at their command, they will endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital questions. The church appeals, see what happens here, the church appeals to the strong arm of civil power, and in this work, papists and Protestants unite. 
So the message is coming and the pastors are like, this is bad. So the church unites with the state to block it. As a movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and more decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers to try and stop the final message being given. Reading on, they will be threatened with fines and imprisonment, and some will be offered positions of influence and other rewards and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. But their steadfast answer is, show us from the word of God our error. Notice what she says. Some are threatened with fine and imprisonment, and others are offered rewards. Satan has been a student of human nature long enough to know that some of us in here, let's be honest, some of us in here, we will stand and refuse no matter what punishment comes our way just because we're stubborn people. And he knows he can't get us on force. But there's some of us in here that he could get on a promise of a reward. There's some of us, we don't want the reward but he might get us because we may break under pressure. So either he's going to try both. Going to try the, the, the nice approach, going to try the hard approach. Different ones for different people. Some people sell their soul for money. Who would not sell their soul through torture and imprisonment? They just won't. Nope, not giving up. Not giving up. Just stubborn people. Will not Back down, no retreat, no surrender, no nothing. Offer money? Okay, yeah, I'll do it. It's amazing. You know, I see it sometimes in, in, in you know, you see it sometimes in churches. People surrender their ethics for money. I mean, that's why the little decisions you make now as young people plays a part in this. When your exam is on Sabbath, when you take the job and your employer asks you to go to a function on Saturday and you give in and you say, yeah, okay, and yeah, that's not a problem, and you start making little concessions now, what will stop you making big concessions then? God tests us on the small things now. He tests us on the small things now. Those who are arraigned before the courts make a strong vindication of the truth, and some who hear them are led to take their stand and keep all the commandments of God. Amen? So even at the very end, some will stand before um, courts and say why they believe, and some people will even change their mind then. The more power that is displayed, the more determined religious leaders are to persecute. You see, the loud cry is more than a message. It is a revelation. It's more than something said. It is a demonstration, a demonstration of the life of Jesus. The message spoken must be lived as well. And it's the early rain today that prepares us for the latter rain to give the message with power. To take the pride away from our hearts now, to take the ambition away from our hearts now, that we're willing, you know, you know sometimes I think that God cannot entrust us as a church with the type of results that he wants to give us because pride would destroy us. You know, I've, seen, I've had the privilege to work with some great evangelists in this church, and I'll tell you something, by working with some of the great evangelists in our church, the one thing that always strikes me 
when I've had the privilege to you know, rub shoulders or work with some of these great evangelists, I won't name them, you can guess one or two of them, they are always really humble men. And you're thinking, this guy is like preaching to thousands and baptizing thousands as well. Just humble. Really humble. And it's not a, not a fake false humility. Just a deep humility. And you, and you start to realize, well, God can entrust this man with that many people because he, he has the humility to deal with it. And oftentimes, God doesn't entrust us or bless us with great results. Not that it's a blessing to us. Or use us for great things. Because he knows our pride could not handle that. Right now, there's not many of us who, who, who have a humility to the degree that we can handle our shadow healing a man when we walk through a hospital. We're like, whoo. You're like Facebooking it, Instagramming it, tweeting it, you know, telling the whole world, check this out. And even if we wouldn't, there might be a false humility. But it's not a real humility. I mean, if we did something like that, God says, no, I can't use this person to do that because using him to do that will destroy him. And so it's like, almost like I think God is holding back the outpouring of His Spirit because the reality is, as Laodiceans, we struggle so much with pride, self-sufficiency. We would think we did it ourselves, maybe. Who knows? I once heard a, a, an Adventist talking about, you know, uh, how does it go? I forget. Um, I'm proud to say I'm a humble man. He was, he was like, I'm proud to say I'm humble. And he was joking. He was joking at the time. He said, oh, I'm proud to say I'm humble. And it was, a, you know, everyone kind of laughed as well. Oh, that was funny. He proud to say he's humble. You know, the irony of the two sentences, put, the two words put together. But the reality is for most of us, that's our, that, that is us. We're proud of our humility. But it's not real humility. God is waiting for a people whose character is, is purified a people who, who are like their master so much that are willing to go through an experience like the cross, like Jesus did. And then he's able to use us. It's not a message to be spoken. It's a message to be lived as well. A demonstration of the life of Jesus. Notice here, Christ's Object Lessons, page 415. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last rays of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of the character of love. That's the, last me that's the last ray of light, is a revelation of the character of love. The children of God are to manifest His glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Now, at the beginning of this presentation, we talked about the actual components of the message, you know, the truth about Sunday sacredness, state of the dead, etc. All of that part is like the edge of the puzzle. Understanding that is like the edge of the puzzle, even the corners of the puzzle. The real picture in the middle of the puzzle is a revelation of the love of Christ seen in our lives, demonstrated in our lives. 
experienced in our lives and that we are to show to the world. The world is waiting, not necessarily for more explanations. It is waiting primarily for a demonstration. The loud cry is really, in a sense, the message that we already know, but giving it with the power of the Holy Spirit in latter rain force, which we can only give and do if we're living and abiding with Christ and receiving the early rain each day. I pray God may help us on a daily basis to continue surrender. I pray if you don't know intellectually the loud cry message or what the components of it are, what the doctrine is, then study, understand it, comprehend it intellectually. At least know what it is, but don't negate the experience of having God transform your heart that you can give that message. There's no point being able to preach about Sunday sacredness and preach about the mark of the beast if you are acting as a beast yourself. You know? God needs people who are, don't, who are not reflecting the beast when they're preaching about the beast but people who reflect the Lamb when they preach about the beast. People who reflect the Lamb when they preach about God's message. Let's bow our heads for a closer, for a word of prayer, and then if there's any questions, I'll take any questions. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, and I pray that in each one of our lives here, that our experience may be one that we may see evidence of your power and your goodness in us. I pray, Lord, that our experience may be one of surrender, it may be one of denial, and it may be one of humility. Bless us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that when the time comes, when the loud cry message is given to this world, that we may have the courage, that we may have the boldness, that we may have the humility the love and the tenderness, each one of us individually here to give this message. Prepare us, Lord, today to be able to stand tomorrow is our prayer in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.